It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. On May 18th, the CDC released a turning point decision on the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S., recommending that fully vaccinated people no longer needed to wear masks indoors or outdoors, regardless of the number of people at a gathering. These updated guidelines come as different states and companies determine what rules align best with their COVID safety protocols and beliefs. As more places are reopening and life returns to somewhat normal, We are taking a closer look and a look back at some of our most interesting conversations about COVID-19. Last July, I spoke with the national editor of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, and Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey to reflect on the GOP Senate coronavirus stimulus bill and the state of the 2020 race as the pandemic raged on. We have a long way to go before November 3rd. It's hard to see how anything breaks through if the coronavirus is still seen by Americans as being sort of either out of control or not contained enough to make them feel safe. The economy cannot get back, even if you open everything, say the schools are open and stores are open, if people don't feel safe. And as somebody who, you know, recently went on an airplane for the first time since March, it is a very odd feeling. It's surreal. Through. I've been on it's a couple. Surreal. It's surreal. Right? You go yeah. through these airports, it's the middle of the summer and there is no one there. I was at Dulles and there were three flights listed on the United Airlines board. Three. There's usually 500 flights. So that's not because the planes aren't open. Some people are scared to fly on them. So you can't have an economic recovery without people feeling safe, period. Which is why a lot of people say the president has decided to get back in the coronavirus task force game, the briefing uh, likely starting Tuesday, and the president will lead it. Uh, Peter Ducey, you've been on the trail. You've been talking to Joe Biden. Well, not really. Where is this campaign? Are they in the sense that they're kind of sprinting, coasting to November, or are they... Where's their head? Riding the speed limit. Yeah. Yeah. Through Delaware and Pennsylvania, and that is it. I mean, in the last uh, couple months, with the exception of a closed press trip to Houston, we have only seen him in Pennsylvania and in Delaware. And the campaign basically takes a week to figure out exactly what they want him to say for like 20 minutes, 
And then he goes out and he sticks to the script and he walks off and that's that. We're There's not get... been any impromptu questions, like here or there. Uh, there was one event about a month ago, three weeks ago, where he did take a handful. Uh, the campaign sent him out with a list of questioners. Uh, our Doug McElway was not on the list, but managed to get a question in. Uh, but beyond that, no. And his Secret Service detail sees us over in the corner. They know that we are uh, clean and they let us holler at him. You know, hey, come over. Do you have time just for one? Uh, and he apparently never has any time, even though he does just have the one in-person event a week. And he's usually only about, a, at the most, a two-hour drive away from home, but usually about 20 minutes, including the Wednesday event. Yeah. It is stark, the difference between taking questions, Amy. But this president, uh, you can say whatever you say about the answers and whether you like them or not or whether they're just rambling or however you want to characterize them or if they're great in your mind. But he answers them. You know, he takes the questions. He's taken more questions than any president, maybe not in a formal setting, but in a, uh, as, as president. But in the contrast to Joe Biden, it is pretty stark. Yes, that is indeed true. Although I bet if you went and you gave a sort of truth serum to Republicans, and maybe actually you didn't have to give them that much truth serum, just told this was a private conversation, they would say, God, I wish that the president would be as disciplined as Joe Biden in terms of having very clear having a very clear message every day, driving that message every day. You're the president of the United States. You can drive whatever message you want nonstop. And instead of it being focused and it being concise and on the issues that matter most to voters, as you pointed out, it often goes all over the place and it gets him in more trouble. And the thing is, if you're going to drive a campaign as this campaign, uh, the Trump campaign seems to want to do as a choice between candidates. They don't want it to necessarily be a referendum on Trump's handling of these past few months, but instead really a choice between Donald Trump, who's going to help bring America and make America great again, and Joe Biden, who's going to lead us into a state of anarchy and, you know, total horribleness. Um, You have to be able to, if you're going to do that, You have to be able to get out of the spotlight. You have to give your opponent a chance to make those mistakes, to let the press focus on them. If you're filling the spotlight constantly with new chum, well, that's where the press is going to spend most of its time. Um, And finally, I do think what's going to be very important, though, is the very first debate. That is going to carry so much weight. The good news, if you are the Trump campaign, is that Biden could come into this thing. He's rusty, as you know, we know he hasn't been out on the campaign trail. He hasn't been doing the back and forth with reporters. He could really fumble this. The bad news, though, is that the president and many around him continue to treat Joe Biden and mock Joe Biden as somebody who is barely there mentally and that if he's if, if Joe Biden basically steps up on stage and doesn't drool all over himself for two hours, he's basically going to be okay. Let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at Show.com. 
We've had many discussions during the pandemic about the coronavirus stimulus bill before it set in. In May of 2021, I spoke with former Congressman Harold Ford Jr. from Tennessee, former campaign manager for Massachusetts Senator Scott Brown and GOP strategist Colin Reed and political editor at National Journal Josh Kroshauer about the continued struggles of the U.S. economy due to the pandemic, especially after April's jobs report did not meet expectations. Josh, let me start with you. You know, you listened to the president and again today came out defending uh, the unemployment benefits, saying they're not seeing that as a major factor uh, affecting the economy. In other words, paying people to to stay home and they are staying home and added the caveat that if people are able to get a suitable job, that unemployment benefits would stop. Uh, What about this? Well, look, I'm not sure if that, that's truly the case. Uh, this is all about incentives. And, and if people, especially in the lower end of the income scale uh, of the jobs that are out there, restaurant jobs, service uh, sector jobs, you know, if, if, if the pay that you're getting both from the $1,400 payments plus the unemployment insurance is, is greater than what you would be doing actually working in person, there, there's some incentives that are uh, disincentivizing, disincentivizing work. So I, I thought Biden actually made a little bit of a nod to that argument, even though he ultimately rejected it. But look, if you see numbers that continue to underwhelm, continue to not meet expectations, this is Biden's economy. This is Biden's stimulus that's having an effect on the economy. And uh, ultimately, uh, if the economy doesn't uh, grow as fast as uh, they were expecting, it, he's going to face a lot of a lot of political blowback, not from Republicans, but from within, also from within his own party. Yeah, Harold, the uh, negotiations are just starting really with Republicans. Um, and towards the end of this week, they'll meet with President Biden. Do you sense that this is a different change, a different uh, kind of perspective than the first COVID stimulus we saw? I hope there's a way to find bipartisan support for for the for the infrastructure plan. It seems that 700 billion or so is where Republicans are starting at. And 2.2 is where he's at. I've said this before. I think this is all about competing and winning the 21st century and, and winning this new Cold War against China. But your question, I think it begs some, some other questions and not to dodge it. I, I'm still not of the belief, though, yet, though, that this 1.9 trillion has created some kind of laziness amongst workers uh, in our economy. Uh, I think there are two other reasons. One, maybe benign. Maybe the forecasters were just way off. Maybe there was no way to create a million jobs this last this last month. Uh, but let's assume they were right. What it says is that two other things. One is that maybe the salaries that we're paying people should be higher. Maybe we have to figure out ways to incent people to come back to work. That the whole notion of the, the, the traditional, traditional thinking around the economy has been upended or upset. People have realized that they can be productive from home, that they can use other assets to make a living. Not to mention because a number of parents uh, and grandparents who are concerned that even if the schools are open, sending their kids to school may risk some family member's life at home, a grandmother, an aunt, an uncle, a grandfather who also may be staying at the house. So there are a number of factors. And I think we can we, we certainly shouldn't dismiss the notion of maybe there are too many incentives for workers to stay home. But I just have confidence in the American worker of all backgrounds and rural and urban America alike that they want to get back to work. I think this might have been a blip also. So we'll give this another month or two. And if we find ourselves 60 days from now with the same data, uh, then the Fed will likely have to act and make money, uh, make the make the money supply a little tighter. Yeah. Colin, I guess 
you know, if we don't see the major jobs uh, jump up with all of this stimulus being poured in, and remember that some of the first stimulus, even before Biden was in office, had has not been fully spent yet, let alone the $1.9 trillion. And now the ask for the big infrastructure projects, which a lot of people are questioning, you know, what's the timeline on that? If these projects, you know, those jobs are kind of horizon things. They're not shovel-ready tomorrow. Well, well, Brett, I think we can't lose sight of the fact of how big this job miss was. It was the biggest job miss ever in, in recorded history. So this was not a blip on the radar. This was a major, major setback. And to Josh's point, uh, in politics, uh, politicians get credit for the economy when it's going well, and they take blame for it when it's going poorly. And Biden is going to have to own this. But I think the long-term uh, political impact here is that now we're going to start to argue uh, whether or not that we should be spending this money on its merits. Because up until this point in the pandemic, Democrats have said we should spend this much. Republicans have said, well, let's do this much. Now Republicans are starting to get their foothold into the argument, wait a minute, we have spent way too much, way too fast. All of this spending is spooking investors. It's encouraging unemployment. It's it's making it harder for people to, to hire people. So it's really giving Republicans a foothold to make this point. And as it relates to the infrastructure bill, I mean, you saw over the weekend, Mitch McConnell said he was open to an $800 billion number, far lower than the number that the, that the Biden administration has put forward. But at the same time, on the Democratic side, you also saw Bernie Sanders saying that he's getting, quote, impatient with Joe Biden wanting to work with Republicans on the infrastructure bill. So it could be on that as we look forward to that next debate, it could be that Biden's biggest headache is from his left uh, more than his right when it comes to uh, partners to negotiate with. Josh, meantime, as this is all happening in the backdrop, a uh, big, big story about this ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline, um, essentially affecting uh, potentially uh, energy and how we move uh, oil. Uh, and the president also talking about that, saying um, he's got his people trying to track down exactly where it came from and what it means. Uh, that's a huge issue. Yeah, it's a really huge issue. If, if, if our oil pipelines, if our energy supply can be threatened by some some hacker backed by by a rival country, it, it raises, raises questions about, about our national defense. If you don't you wouldn't expect uh, the American infrastructure to be able to be messed around with. By, uh, by 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 foreign operators or, or hackers backed by foreign countries, so it raises that question and that concern. And it also comes at a time when gas prices have already been on the rise; they're going up even more as a result of this this uh, loss in supply. Um, and 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 you know we're we're heading into the Memorial Day weekend where people are looking to to go on vacation for the first time maybe in quite some time, and gas prices are three dollars and more in a lot of uh, parts of the country. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's a security angle to this that, that's concerning. And there's also just the, the pure economics angle where people don't want to be paying, uh, you know, significantly more for gas than they did just a few months ago. You know, this is a bipartisan issue, Harold. This is um, a lack of congressional you know, effort to get behind something that could be a public-private uh, cybersecurity um, bill. It never materialized. And now, you know, we're in a position where you've got electric grids and pipelines and everything else that is, uh, that's vulnerable. So the most physical infrastructure in our country is our energy infrastructure and arguably the most important. Uh, and what data is telling us and experts are telling us is that it's maybe may the most vulnerable. Brett, I've said before, we spent massively in the mid to late 20th century to defeat the Russians. On, on ideological grounds, and so so much good came out of it. wealth job creation across our country, including 
the real discovery of the internet, all that has come with it. The longer we, we, we bicker around with this, the more likely it is we find ourselves facing another colonial uh, energy problem going yeah. forward. Colin, um, it does seem like it's a, a huge issue, uh, and we just don't know how far it's going to go. Um, tough to get our, our head around what they're facing every day. I mean, we, we've done stories about cyber attacks happening in the millions every day on the U.S. Yeah, and the energy industry is a specifically is a, is a particularly large target for these hackers because we do have more two and a half million uh, miles of pipeline in this country. And obviously, right now, there's a, a lot more questions than answers. But I, I think uh, on the good news front is that one, that, that this uh, attack was uh, alerted and was stopped before it could get too, too far out of control. Uh, and then secondly, as Josh mentioned, it seems like right now this isn't going to impact gas prices too much because uh, they are already pushing over $3 a gallon. And that was the, the first thing that came to mind for me when I, when I heard about this. So, yeah, uh, all, all of our infrastructure is tremendously vulnerable to these kinds of attacks. And it's one of those areas where uh, hopefully Congress is able to find some common ground because uh, I don't think our foreign enemies uh, distinguish between Republican and Democrat solutions uh, to this kind of thing. Josh, politically, does this also hurt the Biden administration because of, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline and the the efforts they're making across the board when it comes to natural gas and, and oil? Um, does that become a political issue that, that Republicans jump on in 2022? I think that's an issue. I, I think this lar- more more significantly falls into that national security box. Um, and, and, you know, we'll, let's hope that we don't have any other future attacks to our infrastructure, the electric grid, the, the oil supply, or, or anything else. Uh, if, if there is another attack, you know, before the next election, this could be a big issue. You know, I think that the, the energy issue is is a potential vulnerability for both President Biden and, and Democrats, though I'm not sure if, I, I view this more as a blip, I'm not sure if it has the same legs, if there's no follow through, if there's no, you know, other attack from enemies uh, before the, the next election. All right, Harold, just put on the political hat here. We see more and more statements from former President Trump attacking uh, Republicans and specifically Mitch McConnell, um, Liz Cheney, who's likely to lose her leadership position this week, um, others. Just as a political sense, not as a Democrat, but politically, uh, can they lose specifically in 2022 because of those efforts and whatever he's stirring up in the pot? You say they, you mean Republicans, I, I yeah. think is what you're saying. And, and I think the answer is, is, is yes. I mean, the country, uh, even when we're not as polarized as we are right now, we're always politically divided along some lines and sometimes it's more civil than not. So if you're not united and the Cheney wing of the party uh, is, a, is an important wing, the Romney wing of the party is an important wing nonetheless. If that, if that group stays home or decides to vote with Biden, which I think some of them did in 2020, there's no doubt. And, if, and, and as you look at the 2022 races, I still think Republicans find themselves probably as we sit here today in a, in a stronger spot than they did three months ago heading into the 22 cycle. Um, but if, if with the kind of division being so uh, largely led by the former president, uh, politically, it, it, I think it's hard to argue that it, it helps Democrats. Uh, I would say this one last thing about energy. This is not a partisan issue in my mind. And to say that, and I know no one, Josh didn't mean this, nor did Colin mean this, I think we can expect three to six to nine to 12 more attacks, because you would have to think just one of the things we felt we fell down on 9-11 was we lacked imagination. We have to have the imagination to think that maybe they learn from this hack here and maybe they're going to perfect or improve upon it, which means we have to be smarter 
and faster in our responses and developing of some defense systems against it. Colin, I've said before that, you know, historically midterms, as you head into them, um, go to the party that's not in the White House. And with such slim majorities in both the Senate and the House, I mean, it should be paint by numbers for Republicans if they have the issues um, to win back majorities. But as I asked Harold, is this causing an issue with the former president and his you know, stolen election and the, and the comments he's firing out? Well, the job for any minority party coming out of a presidential year, Brett, is to do two things. One, to present a united front, and two, to offer voters a compelling and acceptable alternative to the status quo and the party in charge. Right now, Republicans are losing on that first front, which is this fight over leadership. And in speaking to people close to Liz Cheney, I think they feel very comfortable about where their position is. They know they're likely to lose their leadership battle, but to them it's worth uh, it's worth the long-term price of credibility, the, the short-term political gain she has to pay. But where I think where we should take this, uh, Brett, is where we started this conversation. And what the midterm will ultimately hinge on is what the state of the economy is in a year and a half. And whether or not Biden, the conventional wisdom has been that coming out of this uh, year lockdown and coming out of this economy with all this money artificially pumped into it, it's gonna, it was gonna boom. And that that shattered on Friday. And that is that is where this economic or where next year's midterms, the fight is gonna be had one way or another. So um, yeah, the Liz Cheney uh, ongoing feud, it, it's not helpful to the Republican party, no doubt, uh, but there's a chance that by the end of the week, uh, that'll be in the rearview mirror and we'll be on to the next battle. And, and more broadly, uh, Republicans need to un- figure out, are they gonna wanna continue relitigating the losing battle of last year or do they wanna pivot and offer themselves as an acceptable alternative to government next fall. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of Republicans in the midterms that are going to focus on Liz Cheney's House Conference Chair, you know, leadership battle. Um, but I agree with you, Josh. Uh, last word here. There are some sometimes canaries in the coal mine and things we watch. Sometimes we read too much into them. Uh, you have the Texas election that Democrats had high hopes for, but Republicans managed to pull out. It is Texas, however. Um, and you have a big race in Virginia, the governor's race, where um, Democrats obviously are poised in a pretty bluish state, but we could see some interesting votes that we should watch. Yeah, one interesting development, Brett, is that uh, Republicans are actually nominating less MAGA-like candidates in these early fights for the, the nomination, whether you talk about the Texas race, where you had some pretty establishment Republicans, including the widow of the former congressman, moving on to the runoff. There's actually a race in New Mexico that should stay in Democratic hands, but Republicans nominated a former football player who uh, his, is Hispanic and uh, has offered a pretty pragmatic, moderate-minded message. Uh, he is actually running on law and order and, and violent crime in Albuquerque which is becoming a big issue, not just there, but across the country, and maybe a big issue in the midterms that Republicans, even some Democrats are talking about. And yeah, Virginia, um, you know, I think uh, Virginia always goes against the, the, the party in charge, whether it's in, in Washington or, or now full Democratic control of government in the state of Virginia. And uh, if Republicans can nominate someone like a Glenn Youngkin, who is you know an old school establishment Republican who used to be CEO of the Carlisle Group, I mean, it's the kind of candidate that could, that could certainly put, put that governorship in play and make it a real barn burner in this off-year election. So these are all bellwethers. There is a big, big problem with the MAGA wing of the party, the Trump wing of the party, and the more mainstream wing of the party. And I, I think what McCarthy wants is to find some middle ground where you kind of support Trump or, you know, pay deference to Trump, but don't 
advance his more conspiratorial and extreme positions. I don't know if that's going to hold till next November, but that that's the goal of, of McCarthy. And, with, and that, that's how he's looking at these leadership fights. That will do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.